Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. I'll say to all of you out there, if you've got a Bible, go to Exodus 20. Go to Exodus 20. It's going to be a lot of fun today. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. If you enjoy the Old Testament, you're going to love today. So I've been saying for a while now that I think maybe the next series that I do would be um, to do some, some stuff in the Old Testament. And we, I, I, I guess back before we did Philippians, I was wavering back and forth between either preaching on Philippians or doing some Old Testament stuff. And I didn't really have a, a set place in my mind of where I wanted to go in the Old Testament. There's a, a, a of course, there's, a, there's a, a lot of places we can go with that. And uh, a lot of books, um, books of the law, old te- you know, history books, prophecy books, large prophets and small prophets. Um, just simply not, not that they were larger people. <laughs> not that Elijah was a much larger prophet than Micah, but they, I don't know, they may have been larger in stature, who knows. But there's so many places that we could go in the Old Testament. And so what I, I guess what I decided to do was I decided to preach a, a series of messages in a section of the Bible that I don't think, to be honest, that I have ever preached on before. And when you consider that, it's actually kind of amazing because you would think that this would be some of the most basic foundational things to teach from in the Bible. And what I'm referring to is we're going to begin a series, a 10-week series, specifically looking at the Ten Commandments in the Bible, the, the, those first laws that God gave to his people, those first commandments, those first pieces of instruction that he passed down to Moses on tablets as he came down off of that mountain and, uh, and wrote uh, his first laws to his people. And we're going to look at those today. And Exodus is actually part, so if you're looking at Exodus, if you have your Bible open, it's actually part of a, a, larger, a larger book, something called the Pentateuch, which means book in five parts. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're all written by Moses, and they're one book in five parts. And the Ten Commandments are right smack in the middle of them, kind of tucked away there in Exodus chapter 20. And so really, the story begins in Genesis, and that's kind of what I want to do today. Uh, I want to I give us a, a background of how we got to the Ten Commandments, why God gave the Ten Commandments. I don't think we, can, I don't think we should just jump right in and, and look at Exodus 20 and just read verse 3, which is the first commandment, about what, you know, and just read them one by one and study them without really considering why we have them, why God gave them to his people. And so really the story, as I said, begins in Genesis after sin enters the world. So from Genesis 3 on, God picked a person named Abraham to be to be saved. He was the first person that God, I mean, God just reached down and picked out Abraham and said, I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you. God uses him to bring forth the nation of Israel and ultimately bring forth Jesus Christ. And he promises Abraham that he's going to have a big family and he's going to be blessed and that he and his wife Sarah would would be a blessing 
to multitudes of people. And so Abraham and, and Sarah have Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob. And this is sort of working through the storyline really quickly in, in Genesis. And if you know the song Matthew's Begats from the, uh, from the, you're already singing it. As soon as I said Isaac, he had Jacob. You, you're singing it, aren't you? And uh, Mike Kennedy, if you're watching, I know you're singing that song too, and, and all others who have heard it. Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb of God has a great song where he kind of goes through all of these. Well, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and then as you work through the storyline, as you near the end of Genesis, you see that Jacob, this man Jacob, has a family who has lots of sons. Jacob has a lot of sons, and one of these sons that he has is, is a younger son named Joseph. Well, Joseph, as a younger son, is actually sort of J uh, Jacob's favorite, and uh, because of that, bad things happen. It's never good. Bad things happen when dads play favorites. And so jo Jacob kind of plays favorite with Joseph, and his brothers get jealous of that. And also Joseph's, Joseph's a little bit arrogant about it, and he talks about himself a lot. And, and then his brothers get a little sick of it, hearing it. And so they get mad at him, and they, they decide to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. They, they take him down and sell him as, a, as, a, as an Egyptian sla as a slave in Egypt. And so although Joseph is at that time in Egypt, really far away from the rest of what we know as God's people, he's not far away from God. So geographically, he may be far away, but God is still with him and God draws near to him. And because of that, and because God loves him, he blesses him right there where he is in slavery. And even though he is enslaved and at various points imprisoned, he's used by God to do amazing things in Egypt. He, and, and he, and he he rises up as a really powerful and prominent um, political leader there in Egypt, and he's he's working for the Pharaoh, the godless king of Egypt, the most powerful, influential nation in the history of the world at that time. At least it was Egypt in that day, and then the New Testament days. We know that this was a lot. That this was like the Roman Empire. And uh, some people have actually compared the United States to, you know, as, as an example of what that would feel like today, although I'm not so sure that that is it's, it's exact, uh, com uh, accurate comparison. But if you're looking at this, at this and you're trying to figure it out, what this is, is Egypt is an international powerhouse. And that's where, uh, that's where Jacob is right now, or Joseph is right now, I'm sorry. So what happens is he gets this opportunity to serve the Pharaoh and the nation. And God gives him a, a lot of wisdom, and they're living in the midst of, of, of the season of having plenty. I mean, God is, we, you know, they, they're being blessed like crazy. They have multiple years of just record-breaking harvests, food for everybody. Home prices are on the rise. Real estate is through the roof. There's no end in sight. And it just seems like everyone in Egypt is prospering. But no one knows that around the corner, there's a fiscal cliff that's coming. It's in their immediate future. And so what happens is God reveals to Joseph that there's going to be a lot of lean years of famine. They're coming. And he says to him, store up in the years of plenty for preparation in the years of lack and in want and in need. And this happens as a result um, or as a result of this happening, as a result of Joseph hearing God and doing that very thing. While other nations are starving during that time of famine, the nation of Egypt was flourishing because of the wise presence of a great leader and manager named Joseph. Joseph was, was the one who, who helped them in that. So back to his family and back to, back to Jacob and, and his brothers. So Joseph's father, Jacob, thinks he's dead. His brothers come to Egypt and they're, they're looking for really survival. Um, they're, they're not doing as well. Their land is in famine. They're starving to death. And 
there's this amazing reunion that we see in uh, as a re- as a result. This amazing re- reunion uh, of, uh, between Joseph and his brothers. And um, it's a really kind of a cool picture where Joseph comes out and he forgives and he embraces and he loves and he reconciles with his brothers. And it's kind of a, and it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's it's sort of a picture of Jesus, really. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus who, though we've sinned against him and, and threw him down in a pit, he comes out to forgive and embrace and love us as well. And so when Jacob, his father, finds out that he's alive, he reconciles with his son, Joseph. And it's this really amazing reconciliation story. And Joseph invites his father and his brothers to come and move to Egypt. And so they all can live under that blessing that Egypt was experiencing and that provision that they were having during that time. So 440 years pass between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. So what happens in that span of time, it's a lot of time, is a new Pharaoh comes to to power, and this family that Jacob had that entered into Egypt, uh, they, they began with about 70 people. 440 years later, because their kids had kids who had kids who had kids, they became a nation of a, of a few million people. And that great nation of 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 Israel that we know that's that's sort of where those generations built up. Well, the Pharaoh is a different leader, and this Pharaoh now absolutely hates and despises and enslaves and abuses God's people. They're in misery. So, although they initially came there um, to escape the famine and to share in the prosperity, many years later they're now living in slavery under this powerful nation of Egypt. And so what's happening is they're being oppressed. They're in misery. If you can imagine your children and your children's children are all going to be slaves for hundreds of years and nothing but slaves, no hope, no prosperity, no future, no love, no grace, nothing better. Just this is what we're born into and this is what we're going to have. And that's all they expected. Well, God's people reached a point to where they cried out to him, begging him for deliverance. And God hears their prayer and he answers their prayer. And that's the same thing that he does today. We need to know that. We've prayed this morning and I hope that you prayed believing. And I hope that you will continue to pray to believe. And we need to know that particularly when in suffering and in need, God does hear and answer prayers. So God determines that he's going to set his people free. And so he will do that through a mediator. So everything in the Old Testament that happens, all of these events that seem like they just happen outside of God's presence or, you know, like in, in, in opposition to God, every event in the Old Testament, if you think about it, it parallels what we know that Jesus comes to do later in the New Testament. God is going to use a mediator to set his people free. And that mediator's name is Moses, who's a prophet. And he's representing a foreshadowing of Jesus who comes to stand between us and God and mediate to us uh, with God with God, and bring the truth to us. Well, Moses isn't a great, um, <laughs> he wouldn't be a great example of a leader because he at one point lost his temper and he murdered, murdered somebody. Um, he, we think he probably had a speech impediment. He tells God he doesn't speak clearly. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't, he's not able to go and do what God has asked him to do, uh, to speak to the Pharaoh. 
Um, he's sort of a coward, to be honest. I think sometimes m- much of that argument was him just trying to get out of it, making excuses. And, and God chooses him, I think, because God can do extraordinary things through just really ordinary people who maybe feel the same way as Moses. And maybe you feel that way often. And I think there's a lot of little lessons in here, and that's one of them, because it's all for his glory when he uses someone like Moses or when he uses someone like me or when he uses someone like you, even though everyone knows that yeah, uh, <laughs> we got a dog trying to get through there. He, he made it. Uh, when, whenever God uses someone who has a lot of weaknesses, everyone realize and they, and 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 they do amazing. He does amazing things through them. Everyone realizes, wow, it must have been it must have been God, and and God does he does that. So Moses is told, go to Pharaoh and tell him what to do. Now, of course, I'm paraphrasing here, but I've got to right. No one tells a Pharaoh what to do. Because And the reason why is because Pharaoh thinks he's God. Um, no one comes into the presence of the Pharaoh and says, I demand this. But God commands Moses, as his messenger, to do precisely that. Go to the Pharaoh. He's not God. Tell him there's a real God, and the real God is not happy with the way he's treating his children. Go tell the false God that the real God says, let my people go, that they might be free to worship me. Because that's what freedom is about. Understand that. I guess if you forget everything I say today, I want to plant this in your mind, okay? That's what freedom is. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is the ability to do what you were made by God to do. That's what real freedom is. And God says, I want them to be free to worship me. And if he won't let them go, I'm actually going to bring punishment and plagues upon him and his land. And so I want you to see that that what, what, what happens here, this whole backdrop, this whole background leading up to the Ten Commandments is that God is very loving. God is very compassionate. He is very patient. He's very kind, even with the Pharaoh, the evil leader, because he keeps sending Moses back again and again, and Moses keeps inviting him to submit to the real God and to walk away from his sin. He keeps giving him chances, chance after chance after chance. And yet what we see in the Bible is that Pharaoh just continually hardens his heart. And the Bible actually says in addition to Pharaoh hardening his heart, that God hardened his heart. At one point there in chapter 10, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this is the first 19 chapters of, of Exodus. Or this, you find this in the first 10 chapters of Exodus, this particular story of where we're at now. You can read it for yourself. But it seems strange, doesn't it, to think about that, that God would harden someone's heart? You ever hear, you ever think about that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? You ever pause to wonder, why would God do that? And I want to tell you just really quickly, God did that the same way that God hardens our hearts often. You're like, well, God's hardening my heart? Well, he does it like this. Through patience, through grace, through his kindness, he's always extending that to you. And sometimes you have a soft heart to it, and sometimes you have a hard heart to it. The Puritans were fond of saying something like this, that the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. You see, some of us, when we hear from God, we melt. We're like, yeah, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I need to change. Thank you for telling me the truth. I, I needed that. But then there are other times we hear from God, and what happens? We harden. I don't want to change. I don't agree with you. Um, I, I won't repent. I'm, in fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit your word here. I don't think that that's what it actually says. I'm going to ignore your word. I'll find another God. I'll be my own God, but I'm not going to submit to that God. That's hardness of heart. And some of you might say, you know, well, I, 
how God doesn't harden hearts. Well, it's, it's the reason why your heart hardens is because of the kindness of God. And so in essence, that, that, is, that is exactly what happened there. God was trying to be kind to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just continued to not, uh, to not relent. And so ultimately, it results in the hardness of heart. And so plagues come, and they became increasingly more costly to the land of Egypt. And all of a sudden, it's just ruining everything. It's ruining their, their environmental well-being. It's harming their economy. It's destroying them spiritually. Um, I mean, they were spiritual people. They just worshiped false gods. And the nation is just really suffering, and it just culminates to this, this one plague that we know very well um, because it brought along the Passover that the, Jew, that the Jewish people celebrated every year, and it was the plague of the firstborn son. Particularly in that culture, the, the firstborn son was the hope of the family. That's the way it was in that culture. It was the legacy of the family, and that's the, sort of the future of the family. It's, it's the way that, was, that, that their culture was built. It's the one that's going to care for you in your old age. It's going to make sure that your name continues on in the future. And God says that, um, you know, to, to Pharaoh, if, you know, through Moses, that if you don't let my people go, I'm going to take all of those firstborn sons away. And Pharaoh, again, hardened his heart. And the Bible says that in, in, the, in the dark of night, death came to every firstborn male child in every household in Egypt. They died really, really sad. It's a horrible time. I mean, when people, you know, we've been, I think we've become keenly aware of death during this time of crisis, I guess, in our nation. And when death comes one at a time, which it happens every day, death happens. One, we, we all experience it. Someone in your town or in your city or in your family, it, you experience it. And when it comes one at a time, we don't pay a lot of attention because it's normal. Yeah, death happens. But when death happens all at once, to a lot of people, it's overwhelming. And in, and in, in fact, it overwhelms us to the, to the reality that it is sin that ultimately leads to death. Many deaths at once are just not normal. Well, death is not intended to be normal. It's not the reason God created us. So Egypt, their sin led to death, and death came all at once in the houses of Egypt. And the Bible says that there was weeping throughout all the homes in Egypt. And just think of an entire nation where all of the firstborn male sons were dead, just in an instant. Some lost a son, some lost a husband, some lost a father. I'm a firstborn son, so if, that, that's, if the Passover were happening right now, boom, I'd be dead, Brock would be dead, Ben's good. <laughs> but that's, that's what happened. That's what happened. There was only one exception, and that exception was that all of those who in faith participated in this thing that we said called the Passover, where God would, would, when God poured out his wrath, he provided provision for his wrath to pass over. And this provision was that God's people would gather as a family, and they would take a lamb that was without spot or blemish, symbolizing the sinlessness of perfection, and they would acknowledge their sin by slaughtering that lamb and taking the blood of that lamb and putting it over, spreading it over the doorpost. And that lamb would then be a substitute for the wages of their sin. It would pay the wages of their sin. And they do, they, it showed publicly outside there was blood on their door that they belonged to the Lord in this house. They would have that blood of the lamb and they would, they would, they would, they would be saved because of that. And it was all, again, a foreshadowing pointing to Jesus. There is no Passover without Jesus. That is, a, that is the point of the Passover. 
and I, and I, I pray for, you know, my, my Jewish friends, you know, there is no Passover without Jesus. He is the one who is the lone sacrifice for our sins, the substitute, the lamb who was slain. That is, the, that is what that was pointing to the day that Jesus did that. Um, he alleviates the wrath of God for all of those who have faith and he delivers his people. He deliberates his people. He sets them free. And so through that, through the Passover, the people of Israel were set free and God parts the Red Sea, they cross, and now they're a nation of about a few million former slaves and they're set free, but they're not living free. Because again, we've talked about freedom and people misunderstand what freedom is. They think freedom means just do whatever you want. Well, that's what they were doing. They were committing adultery. They were stealing from one another. They were coveting. They were lying. They, were, they, were, they weren't raising their children in the Lord. They were worshiping false gods in addition to the real God. I mean, they still, they still understand. They recognize God, Yahweh, God, but they also made their own gods. I mean, so they, although they were set free, they were cho- choosing to not live in what true freedom is. They're actually living in slave, in slavery to sin. And so God's going to speak to them about what they were doing. He's going to be loving to them. He's going to be gracious to them. He's been patient to them and merciful to them, just as he was to the Pharaoh. And that's what brings us to the Ten Commandments. And I tell you, as a backdrop, because if we just start in Exodus chapter 20, it, then what happens is, I'm afraid, that we, we, we would read the Bible like, like all of those who are committed to a religion. There are lots of religions in the world, and every single one of those religions are based on rules that you need to follow. You don't do this, God will be proud of you. God will, God will accept you. Don't do that because he'll punish you. And so it's, it's a moralistic way of living. It's a moralistic or a political way of living and reading the Bible. Don't do this, do that, do that. You know, God, God, is, God, is, God has already served to set you free. God has already adopted you as a child into his family. God has already adopted the Israelites as children into his family. They are already his children. That's the context God's not giving them 10 commandments so that if they do those things, that's what shows that they belong to him. They're separated from him. The laws that God gives them isn't for that purpose. The laws God gives them is so that they will understand how to live in freedom and therefore their own benefit and own good. And God speaks to his people, and this is what he has to say. So now let's go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. He says, God spoke all these words saying, actually, I should stop there. Who's speaking? God. God. That's what it says. This is what we believe, okay? That what God says, the Bible says, and what the Bible says, God says. Some of us come to the Ten Commandments and we say, some people actually say, I disagree with that. Okay. Well, you disagree with God when you say, when you say that. I mean, some people say, well, that's, that's his opinion, Okay, go with it. It's God. <laughs> it's God's opinion, right? I mean, you'll hear scholars attempting to promote an agenda of speculation. They call themselves mystics. And they say, well, we don't really know who wrote the Pentateuch. Well, we do know. The Pentateuch is written by Moses. It says in the first five books. It says in Paul's letters. It says in the teachings of Jesus. So, it, you know, it, it, college time. Some of you are in college now. Some of you have been to college. Maybe you heard this. Some of you are going to go to college someday. One of the first things they're going to tell you when you take your first Bible class at your given college of choice is they're going to say, Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Yes, he did. (laughs) He did. Uh, He says he wrote it. 
Paul says he wrote it. Jesus says he wrote it. It doesn't matter what Professor so-and-so says. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And though Moses, uh, you know, and so what, what's happening here is even though, even though Moses wrote it, this is how God works in giving us his word. It is ultimately God who is speaking. I can't emphasize that enough. We need to understand this. Every time we open our Bible, God is speaking to you. You're hearing from him. That's why we should read the Bible, study the Bible. You know, you don't, you don't, if you don't believe, if you don't believe, we don't believe the Bible and, in a, and put it alongside of our own philosophy. We don't read the Bible as, as a supplement to our religion or to our own spirituality, our own ideology or whatever it is that we, we don't believe that this is speculation about God. We believe that this is revelation from God. That's what the Bible is. As a church, Oasis Church, we understand this is foundational to who we are. So God's going to say something, and if anybody really wants to hear from God, this is where you hear from God. And he begins when he gives them the first commandment that he'd ever given them by saying, I am the Lord your God. This is God speaking to everybody at once. Some people say have said that this is the only time, the one and only time in the Bible that God assembled all of his people together in the same place directly to speak to directly. It's unprecedented. It's extremely important. It's historically in a category all by itself. He's going to start by saying, this is who I am. This is the truth. And apart from revelation from him in this way, we wouldn't know who God is. I mean, if God didn't tell us who he was, we wouldn't know who he is. So here's the good news. God does tell us who he is. He says, I am the Lord, your God, your God. It's very personal. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of what? Slavery. See, the problem is slavery. It's always slavery. The solution is God. Problem's always slavery, different kinds of slavery. The solution is always God. This is not just a story about what happened one time, but it's a story about what always happens. That's what, it's what sin is. It's not just an old book. It's a timeless book, and it's always true. That's what timeless means. It's always true. And so what God is doing is he's giving us laws. Those first five books of the New Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're, they're, they're the books of the law. And it's not surprising because they're filled with tons of laws. Some people have looked up, they've said 68.5% of the first five books of the Old Testament are laws. There's, some people actually counted them. There's like 613 laws. The Ten Commandments are a summary and they're the center of the law. God's going to give us laws and so when you when I say it that way, it probably, it, it doesn't make us really excited. I mean, how many of you, if you were raise your hand right now, how many of you get excited about the law? Like if I said, hey, the IRS came out with a new tax code and every Sunday for the next 10 weeks, we're going to look through the fine print of that tax code. We're going to look at all the details. How many, you'd probably check out, you'd be like, okay, I think I'll skip the next 10 weeks. I'd, I'd check out too. I wouldn't want to look at that as well. If, or if you're, uh, let's say your boss comes to you and says, hey, come on into the break room. And, you know, corporate just sent us a whole bunch more policies. Every time I think about, every time I say, like, talk about the boss and corporate, I always think of the office. Does, that, does the office come to your mind when you, I, I, I picture Michael Scott saying, hey, we're going to the conference room because corporate gave us a whole bunch of policies. How many of you would just run to the break room um, with singing psalms in your heart? I delight in the law of my, in my innermost being. I delight in the law. That's just not the way it would happen. Okay, yes, give me some more rules about the coffee machine and things like that. When we think about law, we tend to think of negativity. 
negativity. We tend to think in negative terms and negative contexts, and that's really unhelpful for us when we come to the Old Testament law because that's not what God's laws are like. Many people think it is, but it's not what God's law is like. Two of the most influential people outside of the Bible, I think, for our understanding of what the law is would be John Calvin and Martin Luther. Both of them were actually trained as attorneys. And they have some incredible things to, I tried to look at some of that, and it's really hard to understand, but they have a lot of incredible things to say about the law and the gospel, and it's just super insightful. But in reading the Bible as an attorney, you can miss something that I think is really important for you. Commandments, laws, and rules are much, much different when they come from a father. They're most assuredly different coming from a father than they are when they come from a dictator. You see, Pharaoh had laws also, but they weren't loving. They weren't life-giving laws. They weren't given like a father gives them to their children. And so what God is doing is he's gathering his children at the base of Mount Sinai after he has saved them after he has provided for them, after he has shown them his kindness and his mercy, and all of that that we've talked about here leading up to this first commandment, he gathers them down to sit and talk to them about his laws. And he's not saying to them, do these things so that I will adopt you. He's saying to them, I have adopted you, and I need you to do these things because I love you, because they're good for you, and they're also good for others. And if you do these things, then your behavior will not cause others pain. Part of the struggle I think we have with the law sometimes is we disconnect the law from the lawgiver. And when we disconnect the law from the lawgiver, we misunderstand the heart of the law. And that's why the Pharisees in the New Testament, many years later, the Pharisees missed it. They didn't get it because they loved the law, but they didn't love the Lord. And so for them, they became focused more on the law than on the lawgiver. See that in Hebrew, the word law is Torah, and, and that's, that's what we're told. In the, all throughout the Old Testament, we're told about the Torah, and it's, that's the original word for it. And we, we have a hard time translating that word. We look for a word in our English language, and the only thing that we have is law. And it's not necessarily a bad word. Torah wouldn't be seen as a bad word. But, it, but it, it's, it's in our minds, it's used, it, it, it brings negative and bad connotations because we think of the IRS tax code or our corporate cumbersome bureaucracy, you know, governmental, middle management and things like that. But it's also used all throughout the Old Testament, like in Proverbs, when a father who loves his kids is sitting down teaching his kids and he says to them, my son, open up your ear and listen to my, my Torah, my law. That's different. That's different. As parents, we don't just drop law on our kids. We sit down with them. We look them in the eye. We kiss them on the forehead and we say, look, I love you. And I I want to pray this for you. I'm praying for you on this. And we tell them that we can't love them any less because of what they do. We can't love them any more because of what they do. We, We love them wholeheartedly, unconditionally. We're devoted to them no matter what. And then we tell them the things that we want to give them so that they would flourish, so that they would have the best life possible. And we want them to be blessed. And we want to talk with them. And we say, okay, we're going to lay down some rules and some expectations and some guidelines for how to live. And we want them, we want you to focus on these so that you will not suffer and that you will not cause others to suffer. That's the whole point of it. That's the Father's heart, and that's the heart of God. And that's what it means to be, to, you know, when God comes to his people and says, I've got commandments for you. I've got some laws for you. If you separate the law from the Father heart of the lawgiver, what you end up with is you end up with questioning, like many people do, because they don't love God. They don't know God. They say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a dictator. He's a tyrant. 
He's, he's not good. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care. He's not interested in me. He's just a faraway dictator who sends down his laws. And if we obey them, we get to be a citizen. If we disobey them, then we get to burn forever in hell. Yeah, that sounds like a great God. That's what people say. And so I guess the last question is, how should we interpret and study the law then? If we get ready to study these 10 commandments over these next 10 weeks, how do we interpret them? How do we study them as we, as we do this? And, and here, here's how we should view the laws. Jesus actually tells us how to view the laws. And I didn't give you this verse, but I'll just quote it. Jesus, the rabbi teacher, the Jewish teacher, says this in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He says, everything written about me in the law of, of, of who? Actually, he's getting raised. Who is it? The law of Moses, he says. Luke, Luke 24, 44, he says, Moses wrote this down. Everything written about me in the law of Moses must be fulfilled. So what's Jesus say? The law, what you're studying, is about me, he says. We believe that the Old Testament is about Jesus. We believe that the New Testament is about Jesus. We believe that the whole Bible is about Jesus. We believe that everything is a foreshadowing of Jesus' coming, explaining his victory, preparing for us, uh, preparing all of us for his coming again. We believe that the whole thing is about Jesus. That's what Jesus says that the whole Old Testament is about. It's about him. And so the law then shows us our sin and our need for a savior. And as we read the law, we got to realize that this God who gives us the law, he's holy and he's perfect and he's good and, and he has demands for us and we have fallen short of those demands and we failed him and we sin and sin is a transgression of his law. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes as our savior and he fulfills all of it. He does what we cannot do. He lives with complete obedience to all of the law. And then he dies in my place. And he causes, in doing so, the wrath of God to pass over us. And he blesses us and he sets us free to be children of God, living a new life, a life that is set free. This is what the Bible calls good news. Good news. The people in Exodus, did they save themselves? No, they couldn't save themselves. Did they participate in any way in their salvation? No. They were just set free. God came and set them free. And that shows us how Jesus saves. So what is the first commandment? The first commandment is this in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. God's got, I mean, God's got to teach his kids, sits, sits his kids down. He says, okay, kids, the first and most important thing that you need to know, don't forget this, there's one God. That's where he starts. It's awesome that God starts there. So here's the issue. We've been set free. We're not living free, freely. We're living in slavery. We left Egypt because you know, we, we were committing adultery there. We're stealing. We're lying. We're, you know, we throw in a little weird spirituality and some false gods. We got, you know, somebody's down there right now working on schematics for a golden calf while Moses is up on the mountain and God's actually literally writing these things on a, on a stone tablet. Things aren't going well. Okay, here comes dad. He's going to sit us down on the couch. Kids, listen to me. First things first, there's one God and I'm him. You're not him. You're, you're not God. Nobody else is God. There is no other God but me. Nothing else is God. I'm God. You can't live freely until you realize there's only one God and you're not God. I know that's going to blow your mind. 
I know sometimes that blows people's mind to hear that, but it's, 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 it's it's revolutionary. You are not the center of your universe. You're not the most important person. And the reason why you're miserable is because you've put yourself in the center of your universe. Maybe you've never had anybody tell you that. Maybe right now that stings a little bit. But look, that's the story of God. He says, look, things will not be the way it's supposed to be for you until you take yourself out of the center of your universe. You're worshiping yourself, and that's not what you were made for. That's not how you were made. You were made to worship me, God says. You're made to worship him. You're made to enjoy him. You're made to glorify him. And when you make yourself the center of your life, you make yourself miserable. I'm telling you, the blueprint for making yourself miserable is putting yourself in the middle of the world and saying, I'm the most important thing. God doesn't look at people. and God never says that to people. He never says, hey, look, the most important thing is you. You get a piece of paper and you draw a circle on it and you put the word you in there. And now everything else is revolving and orbiting around you. And I'll just be a blessing to you. I'll be out here. I'll be out here on the outside. I'll be one of those things orbiting around you. God says, you just call on me whenever you need me to. to. You know, I'll be the butler and you hand me the request and I'll answer it. We'll call that prayer. That's not, that's not what God does. God comes to every single person in the universe and he says, I want you to draw a circle and I want you to put my name in it. This is what it means to have God in the center of your world. God doesn't just want to be, some people say, I put God at the top of your priority list. No, God doesn't want to be on the top of your priority list because a priority list in my mind is something that we say, okay, we got God up there, good. Check him off. Now I got my work, now I got my family. Let's check everything off. God's not on a list. God says, I am the center. I want to be the center of your life. And when he says that as the first commandment of all the commandments he gave, we ought to listen. This is what we're made for. And he says, when I'm the center of your life, then we can talk about everything. We could talk about your worship. We can talk about your money. We can talk about your marriage. We can talk about your possessions. We could talk about everything. Everything has to be connected to him if you truly want to understand what freedom is. And if you choose instead to sin, then what you're choosing is suffering. So God says at the very beginning, there's one God. How many gods? One. Well, what's it, what's, it, what's it mean in the Hebrew? Are you sure it's what it says? In the Hebrew, one means one. Well, what does it say anywhere? Does it say anywhere else in the Bible? Yeah, it says it everywhere in the Bible, actually. Well, that's kind of offensive, don't you think? You know, other people will say, well, there's lots of gods. You, know, you shouldn't offend other people's gods. Well, God says there's one God. Other people say, well, there's no God. Well, God says in his word, he is God. The agnostics say, well, we can't really know God. Well, God says, no, I'll tell you. You can know for sure. I've even given you a book. Some come along and say, oh, well, no, you know, everything in the world is, 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 is all part of God. And so it's all God. God says, no, I made the world. And so he comes along and in, in one commandment answers all the philosophical, theological, spiritual questions by saying, one God. Let's pray. And let's worship And if you have communion prepared at your house, this would be a good time for you to prepare your heart to commune with God as we sing uh, this final song together. Well, God, um, as we worship today, we 
we recognize that we're doing that very thing for which we were created. Help us to realize, God, that freedom, true freedom, is, is, is not doing whatever we want, but doing what we were made to do. Help us to realize that today, that, you know, Jesus, you were the first perfect worshiper, and you've set that example for us. And so we have an example. We have a way of knowing how to live this life of worship that you created us for. And so I pray that every day, starting right now, God, perhaps for many people, we would we would yield ourselves to Jesus. We would take ourselves out of the center of our universe, and we would replace ourselves with Jesus. And let's just see, let's see how life is, is a little different this week. Man, God, that's what I pray for everyone right now who's just bickering back and forth about what's going on in our world. That we would just focus our eyes on putting you in the center. Because it is you, God, that have given us the freedom to, to, to rise up and truly conquer our great Pharaoh in Satan and sin and death and, and racism and and political strife and, and, and just personal arguments. And God... How powerful is your grace and your kindness, Lord? It is, it is your kindness, we're told in Romans, that leads people to repentance. And so I just pray that you would put that same kindness in every one of our hearts as we go out to live and interact with people this week. And that, God, there would be a revolution of kindness just changing, changing, just one by one, changing all of these communities. Lord, help us to get this message into our lives. Help, help us to understand what it truly means to be set free and to truly be able to pass along the grace of Jesus. Help us to live freely, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.